You learn how much of a city boy you actually are when you come across a country college town. And you also encounter what a big ego in a little town actually looks like. As a student in SUU, things outside of my Vegas understanding became a culture shock very quickly. Part of me wondered if I was doing something wrong, not wearing tall-ass boots because I thought square toe looked tacky or having a low supply of flannel shirts and absolutely no 10-gallon hats. Not even a 1-gallon hat. There was one guy in particular who reminded me of this small-town ego who didn't always wear the hat and boots. He always had his spotters carry his dumbbells to him in the gym, and when he worked at that gym, he never missed an opportunity to ask if people were of his faith, and if not, why they weren't. Believe it or not, we were actually friends in high school. He moved from Cedar City, where he was born and raised, to Vegas, and then back to Cedar City, after a year or two before he left on his mission. We played catch-up when he got his job at the gym, and he asked me his question of, are you of the faith still? I tried to say something as politely as I could to the vein of, I'm very grateful for the experience and the service it taught me, but I don't find it being useful in my life anymore. He nodded knowingly and said, Yeah, I've heard that excuse before. Another piece of kryptonite that tends to come from small towns is everyone knows everything about everyone else. This guy was very much a part of the country scene and felt like he could get any girl he wanted. We learned this through one of his exes, whom my friend group and I befriended for a time. But, call it my own biases or just a bad experience, country always brought that man to my mind's eye, being so focused on the greatness of their own culture and lifestyle that they approach outsiders with the tone of, you're not just wrong, you're stupid, and here's why. If you think I'm over-exaggerating, it could be worse. That was basically the entire motto of the Crusades. Borealis Entertainment presents Get Lost So You Can Find Your Way Home A podcast and a memoir by M.K. Lott Chapter 23 The Rodeo For four months... Life was just peachy. The new digital ad space job was going great. I hadn't finalized any sales yet, but I was projected to close about $200,000 on doing digital ads alone for a game-like navigation app. Not too shabby for my ramping period. If things hadn't been working or on track just yet, I would consult whoever I needed to to make sure that things could change that I could perform to the best of my abilities, yada yada yada, and that I could keep the job. That was the only true problem with this position. If you didn't hit your quota, you were, let's call it, mutually let go. But that's just sales, right? You can't do your job, you don't keep your job. Easy as that. But seeing that the quota was 60000 I felt like I was doing just fine. And I made a vow to myself. I would do the best I possibly could this job because of how much I loved it and the work culture. And if it worked out, then perfect. I would stay there while I worked my therapy practice up to full time. 
If it didn't work out, then I would find something else and never do sales again. If the past few memoir episodes taught me anything, it's that, in general, sales culture can fuck off. Not sales people, sales culture. Common misconception. And near the end of the month, we are at our height as a department. I was beginning to help adjust new cohorts to the workload, and our training manager was requesting more help with the amount of new hires that were coming in. And one day, my coworker and I were having one of the new hires shadow us in our usual prospecting and outreach, when our manager had the cohort gather quietly and informally. Usually, this only happened if it was urgent, so we paid careful attention. So, I want you guys to make sure you heard this from me before you get misconceptions, she started. But our client is deciding to discontinue the app and they're giving us a month left. We all just stared at her for a minute or so. It didn't settle in with us quite yet. Wait, so my coworker began, we don't have jobs anymore? Yeah, she said. We don't know how long we have left, but we have at least a month. We're fighting for two. But we had no idea about this. The reps didn't even know about this. We had representatives for the company that would check in and make sure that because we were something of a white-label marketing company, we were abiding by their culture and their standards. Apparently, this decision to discontinue the app was so sudden, the representatives were laid off too without notice. This was dropped on us five minutes before lunch, and we didn't know what to do. Then, one of the account executives mentioned they wanted to try a new tequila bar that had just opened up, and as the cynicism began to fester, we all migrated to that new bar. The building itself was actually the Yes Hell once upon a time, where I met a bartender wearing Jesus sandals, got a chiropractic adjustment, and was introduced as Toby McGuire all in one night. I didn't think I would be back in the circumstances that I was. But that just started a uh, slippery slope. And over the next few weeks from then on, my life consisted of what I would call the three M's. Melancholy, mezcal, and emotional breakdowns. A lot of people didn't understand the thinking I had behind this, but I told people for a time that I would have rather been fired than laid off. Yes, it looks a lot worse on a resume, and yes, at that point you wouldn't even mention it in a job interview, let alone put it on your resume. But according to my bitter logic, if I was fired, it would be at least because of my own actions and not something that could just appear at any moment and blindside an entire department. And seeing my history, I felt like I was usually the guy who had a new job every other week. Imagine the reputation I would have with other employers when I was interviewing. Oh, you were at this shop for 10 minutes? Well, at least you're loyal. Oh, you left the job because of bad work culture? Well, good for you for getting through onboarding. We finally got our official last day, eventually. And they only gave us a month. 
to find a new job and go our separate ways. And then, for the fifth time in two years, I was back on the hunt for a day job. And because I vowed to never do sales again, I was at something of an unlabeled crossroads. What could I do while I built up the practice? Online job applications were out of the question for a time, seeing that my once naive ass was offered a job only to be scammed out of almost $2,000, and it even got to the point of going door to door asking people if they had openings. It's also interesting when you're designing a job proposal or a resume in an industry other than the one you were solely accustomed to. Suddenly, skills become more important than titles or companies. And after realizing that a lot of my strengths and interests came from clerical and data work, I started pursuing my next job in the world of libraries and museums. Even though that was an uphill climb in and of itself, because most of the entry jobs require at least a master's degree in those studies. But it took me to the Natural History Museum off the campus of the University of Utah just to get a scope of what the environment and the culture would potentially feel like. Was that an excuse to visit a museum before I had applied? Yeah, of course. But in my defense, I did email my resume before I went and contacted the owner of the museum through LinkedIn. Meanwhile, on my way to the museum, my friend Doug started notifying our friend group chat. Turns out, he had an extra ticket to the Days of 47 rodeo that was happening in a few hours. My answer was immediately no before he and his girlfriend asked me independently. I told them I would sit on it with the idea that maybe if my visit to the museum was done in time, I would see how I was feeling. The country wasn't for me. I'm sorry, but it's still not. And frankly, my perception of what a rodeo was, was very skewed. I thought it was a farmer's market kind of scene, in all honesty, and I didn't want to walk around feeling like a fish out of water, especially being in the mental state that I was in. But hey, maybe the universe would be understanding and get one of the other more rodeo-inclined friends to jump in on the opportunity before I could even say yes. But that wasn't my priority. The priority was simply to see if I would want to work at a museum. In all honesty, I had more of a blast than I was expecting. Yes, there can only be so much fun in a museum compared to something more thrilling like a concert or a sports game, but there is something fun about the process of collecting information and thinking to myself, okay, how do I make this info valuable in one way or another? From learning about how old metamorphic rocks are to discovering that jewels look deceivingly similar when they're hidden in rocks and how poorly fossils age. And I was looking at the skeleton of a sarcosuchus, fucking terrifying when I imagined it with muscle and skin, and something crept through my pessimistic mindset as I studied the teeth. You've never been to a rodeo before, so you don't get to not like it if you've never been. Even though I was at a low point, maybe there was something to just spending time with loved ones and pretending that my world didn't turn to shit. 
even if it was only for a night, somewhere that I didn't like because it reminded me of small town egos. After an hour, I fought the heat on my way to the car, and I drove to the meeting spot, texting Doug a solidified yes along the way. When I got to the rodeo, it was not what I was expecting, like at all. I was expecting almost like a carnival, where it would just be dick measuring contest after dick measuring contest in the form of elevated trucks and guns that may or may not have safeties. But it wasn't. At all. Aside from three or four protesters outside for animals' rights, there was no sense of hostility at all. Then I discovered that this was actually the ideal place for bull riding. I immediately got flashbacks of when I would watch bull riding on TV with my grandpa, and thinking how amazing it was that human beings could do something so dangerous so successfully. It was at that moment that I knew this was going to be fun, even if I was wearing a zero-gallon hat, which is to say, no hat. We grabbed our beer and food and found our seats right along the rim of the stadium. It became a sudden realization to me of what the severity of not just the rodeo, but the Days of 47 rodeo would look like. This rodeo in particular is a celebration of the history and the culture that comes with Western American life and all the hard work and sacrifice that was made to make this a reality. I couldn't help but think about the Polynesian Cultural Center, when my parents worked there and when we went back to it when I was 14. It bothered me how it felt like people's lives were turned into something of an amusement park. But as I got older, the more I thought about that, for some people, this is how they become educated, and this is how they discover that life for Polynesian peoples, and that it's more than just grass skirts and coconut bras. The days of 47, for me, made me realize that maybe there's more to this than terrible mustaches and bad guys from Footloose, which, fun fact, was actually shot in a small Utah town. I pass by it on my way to Vegas all the time. The national anthem was sung, the stadium went reverently silent, and we got a greeting from two guys parachuting in with flares attached to their ankles as they zoomed through two American flags like it was a field goal. The crowd burst into a patriotic roar, and I couldn't help but wonder if somewhere out there, there was a woke liberal having a heart attack. First were the Broncos. The group watched the riders respectfully yet eagerly to perform the best they possibly could, and Doug would lean over with every new athlete to explain to me what was really going on, and all I could do was watch slack-jawed and almost in terror. It's one thing to watch a man get thrashed and ragdolled around on TV, it's another to watch it in real life. Genuinely, I wondered if all of the purse went to health insurance at the end of the rodeo, so winning would just involve trying to make sure your back didn't age like milk. But there was a method to everything, and the night carried on with me becoming more and more reassured about what I was spectating. But something kept creeping through my mind as I watched this. I thought about all the animal rights activists. Yep, all four of them, just sitting outside with smug smiles and handwritten signs that made it very clear that they ran out of room on the paper. And this is probably a precursor to me being a grumpy old man, but the older I get, 
the more I tend to get frustrated with not all, but many animal rights activists. And I think many activists in general, especially when you look at uh, climate change activists who will mess up art and glue themselves to the middle of traffic. Just stupid stuff like that. And sometimes I wonder if the animal rights activists have a good point, like calling P.T. Barnum's treatment in the circus out, or if they're just having a fit for the sake of having a fit. So, I leaned back towards Doug and another one of our friends. Is there any validity to the animal rights shit that's going on out there? His response was immediate, but legitimate. Not at all, he declared. All of these animals are worth at least tens of thousands of dollars. It would make zero sense to abuse them because these animals are the writer's livelihoods and careers. Some of them value these animals more than their own kids. And I never thought of it that way, but the logic was there. Other athletes would say the same about whatever tools they needed, whether it be a board or a bike or a bobsled, whatever it may be. They treat this stuff like it's more valuable than life itself because that's what makes their livelihoods happen. That's what makes life worth it to them. And by having everything go off without a hitch, now it's not just a competition, but a celebration of preserving this kind of lifestyle and having your hard work pay off. And therein is the moral lesson. If you don't appreciate it, then just study it. Hear both sides of it. Try to beat your tunnel vision and explore what else is out there. I think a lot of times, a bad example becomes the embodiment of the entire group or situation. I want to make exceptions to acknowledge that they're there, but even then, you can probably find someone. It may be harder in some cases, like trying to find an act of charity among the Taliban, but then there's also cases of Nazi soldiers being kind prisoners of war in concentration camps. Like Erwin Rommel, who got the nickname the Desert Fox, who did just that in a higher rank, which was an eyebrow raise, to say the least, in the best way possible. It's easy to write something off as bad or snobby, but it's important to recognize the difference between the event and the people that depict it to you. There's some kind of value in everything that we experience and partake in, but it's up to us to make sure that we get that for ourselves and we collect the proper information to make that true. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Get Lost So You Could Find Your Way Home. I hope this episode leaves you better than it found you. It was honestly really nice to go back to a memoir episode, so if you guys like it too, let me know in the polls if you listen on Spotify. And if you'd like to schedule an appointment with me, feel free to reach out using the link in the show notes, and I would love to help in any way I can. Thank you as always, and until next time, here's to finding your way.